Hi, my name is Jamie Beth Schindler, and welcome to a special anniversary edition of What We Will Abide. About a year ago, my husband Sam Schindler started a podcast. In this episode, I ask him a question that's likely on all of our minds. Why? Okay. So, um, I am Jamie Beth Schindler, and I am a writer and a storyteller, and I'm your wife and the mother of your two crazy children. So it's your fault. Who are you? Uh, I'm Sam Schindler. I'm a teacher and uh, also a student, always trying to learn more things to be a better teacher. Um, I am the father of my two crazy children, and recently I have become something that I kind of always secretly wanted to be, which was an AV nerd, <clears throat> although I'm not really an AV nerd. You've always been my AV nerd. Yeah, You're but, my tech guy. No, but now, now like I'm you know, really an AV nerd, but I know like 3% of what, I, what real AV nerds know. Record, using recording equipment to record myself and interviewees for podcasts and my crazy children for their talk show. All right. So I've been wanting to interview you for a little while now, and I've specifically wanted to ask this question for a little while. I don't know if you actually know the perception of you in many of the communities we live in and have lived in is curmudgeon. Um, I've often, I've said this to you occasionally where I've said like, oh, people think you're so dour or you're such a curmudgeon. Um, And you sometimes say like, really? People think that about me? And People really do. But I think something about the podcasting that you've been doing has changed, either changed that about you, or I'd like to know sort of why you started doing the podcasting and how you think it changed you, because I think it's had a profound impact on how you navigate the world. I don't think of myself as an arrogant person, and yet I am an arrogant person, or at least I think a lot of myself in that I think I have thoughts that are worth sharing. And this is largely why I became a teacher, um, because being up in front of a group of people, um, be they small kids, that's how I started with eight-year-olds, eight-year-old dude, to... No one, no one who knows you now would ever believe you had a classroom full of eight-year-olds. I love those kids. I know <clears throat> they're I love, not eight years old anymore. No, they're, they're not. They're 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 twenty-two or twenty-three years old. Um, wow! But although those eight-year-olds were were the ticket in because mm-hmm. it was still a captive group, and I got them to laugh, and that was instant feedback. They were the ticket in because it was instantaneous positive feedback. So, you know, that was the beginning of the teaching and the feeling that, like, having something to say um, and having people hear it and respond to it, mostly positively, sometimes negatively, but they're always being, like, that challenge and learning how to, like, be flexible and adaptable to the challenges was simply intoxicating, was really exciting. But, uh, you know, just that one classroom at one time, um, at, at some point it became, it was like, it's not enough. I want to reach a larger, larger audience. Um, well, and we should say it was once a week Sunday school at a synagogue. So they were twice a week. Twice but a I'm week. talking now about moving into high school and then doing the everyday history okay. teaching and the humanities teaching and looking at texts and then comparing them to modern day ideology, philosophy, um, things like that. I still wanted to sort of branch out further. 
Um, and I fa- and here's where the real tie into the podcast comes, is that I found that somewhere along the line, my worldview changed dramatically. Um, I, rem- it, I remember that. Right. It wasn't a pleasant time for you. No. It wasn't really a pleasant time for me either, strangely. We had just moved here to Lancaster. We had a very small uh, baby daughter. And, and also my mother was dying. And that's the first real experience I'd had with that, like a protracted illness that was ugly and debilitating and what it did to the rest of my family. And I, you know, I didn't really process it very well. You know, I wasn't very self-aware, I suppose. And around the same time, I came upon, through my then Tai Chi teacher and now friend and Russian martial arts partner, <laughs> um, I came upon the, um, the work of Daniel Quinn, who's written this book called Ishmael. He wrote it in 1992. And it basically sets forth a very clear-headed, sensible, concise re-understanding of the history of civilization and really the history of human beings on the earth and how they understand themselves and the story, the stories they tell about themselves. And it posited certain things in, diff- in a light that I had never really come across, but a- immediately made sense to me mm-hmm. and began to really challenge me in terms of all the things that I took for granted, uh, the ways that we live. Um, I began to look at, um, all of the sort of the history that I've been taught and the ways of reading history differently. Um, And I began to just read everything very, very differently. And um, it it, it became uh, demoralizing because, uh, you know, reading Daniel Quinn took me to Derek Jensen, which took me to Guy McPherson. Who are you going to say? Farley Moore. All those people, um, Chellis Glendening, um, and all of these authors who are writing about basically the ills of civilization. Isn't it interesting that reading those books actually took you also to people in your life, like f- people that became friends who either shared that worldview already or had already started investigating it. It's really how you connected with the Lancaster community. Permaculture, yeah. organic farming, sustainable development. Right. Yeah, I don't think I, w- I saw it that way. At the time, we were at a farm stand at a farmer's market, and Daniel Quinn's Ishmael was on the lending library of the person who became one of your closest friends here in Lancaster. And right. had your <clears throat> Jim had already introduced you to it? Yes. So it was one of those things where had we gone to that farmer's market three weeks earlier, you might not have even picked up the book. We might not have started talking to John. Right. Our lives here would be so profoundly different. Yeah, it doesn't like me not knowing John is like, like unthinkable. Unthinkable. <laughs> Lancaster doesn't work without John Darby in your life. Right. It's it it sort of is like, and then you know the, our relationship kind of and the things that we talked about and how all, that ideology kind of like permeated everything we discussed, um, and he became kind of an outlet for a long period of time about the what I saw as. A, a room with no exits, mm-hmm. where it's just like this is how it was, and there's no other way to think about it. The earth is dying. We are perpetuating its death. We are pushing it to the brink. We are completely deluded about it. We kill and kill and kill. We kill each other. We, and 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 we and the whole time we're telling ourselves this is how it's supposed to be. Right. And I don't know if you remember, but I didn't want to meet John Darby right, because right. I was afraid that he was going that we didn't eat 
organically enough. We didn't live sustainably enough that we, I saw us as part of the problem. I didn't want to admit that I saw us as part of the problem, but I knew in my mind that he would think we were part of the problem. But I was wrong. You I, I was wrong. Yeah. John Darby's a good bridge because I had these conversations with him and he would constantly say to me, you're on your way to something. You're, you're on the path to something. And I would, it would frustrate me because I would say, I don't see an end to this. I don't see a positive end to this. And I would, from time to time, I would compare myself to him because he had managed to mm-hmm. take all of this dark mm-hmm. way of thinking and turn it into something positive, which was growing food for people mm-hmm. in, a healthy, um, in, a, in a healthy way that was tied to the land, which mm-hmm. um, people have deliberately forgotten all about, that connection. So... I was like, well, how am I going to do that? I, I'm not going to turn around and become a farmer tomorrow. Um, and so, again, the, the, the idea of having no voice or very small voice what, uh, compounded my frustration because I was like, I have all this truth in my head. <laughs> about it. just It's true. It's inherently true in my mind. And it's a message that you can't really just sort of dole out into someone and have them be like, oh, yes, well, that makes... Because people push back against it. Well, I pushed back against it. Sure. So we just didn't talk to you for, you know, was, two or three years. It was a rough time. <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, I, I remember... Somehow we managed to have a child during that period. I don't really remember how that happened, uh, how that was done. And then I began, began to come out in, in class. And mm. if I may be so bold, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that in some way, shape, or form, this way of thinking um, ended up ushering me out of, of that l- the last place where I was working. Well, I think what I've learned to be true, having ushered myself out not so long ago, is that one thing about this idea of how civilization works or doesn't work that you've come upon through this study and and brought me along with you in a certain way is that it doesn't allow you to exist in an environment that isn't aligned with what you know to be true. Then if you try to be an environment, try to be in an environment that isn't aligned with what you know to be true, the struggle against that lack of alignment will drive you into a very dark place. Your struggle in being out of alignment, because I think you're more an internal focused person, and my struggle to bring the environment in line with my beliefs, two different sides of the same thing, what we know to be true doesn't allow for either of those things. Okay, so the podcast (laughs) came about because you I think it's two things. I think it's two things. It's... I left that environment, which was a stifling environment where I felt like I was fighting all the time. And I began to do some introspection with some help. <laughs> and I began to actually do some meditation, which I think is incredibly important and plays an important role in all this. And I began to kind of see, actually, I think Taoism is a pretty good um, you know, aid here, the basic philosophy of Taoism. Like you push and you push and you fight and you fight and you grapple and you struggle and things get worse. You let go, mm. you allow the path to go in the way that it's meant to go, mm. and things work. Mm. That's a very simplistic, reductionist way of looking at Taoism, but it's sort of what I did. Because I stepped back from the fighting and the fighting and the fighting, in a way because I was sort of forced to, right? I left that environment, so there's no more fighting to do. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, well now 
there's no more fence. There's no more obstacle. Right. How do I do it? Well, I can do it any way I want. Right. And I can I can deliver the message, which is, albeit a, a bitter pill to swallow, and you know whoever is interested mm-hmm. um, can then accept it and can right. listen instead of it being a, a room full of captive kids whose parents might say, whose the administrators of the school might say, this is not acceptable to be talking about. Right. So now it's like you know it opens up. So the podcast becomes a way of in, in this weird kind of somewhat paradoxical way. You're continuing the fight, right, in a different way, but, like, without the fight part of the fight. Yes. If that makes any sense. It does. It makes really good sense. I mean, what I tell people when they ask about your podcast is focuses on local solutions to global problems. And whether that problem is the collapse of civilization, which is about as global as you get, or whether it's clean water, which has a part in the collapse of civilization, that you're talking to people on a hyper-local level who are doing things not to save the world, but actually are doing things to save the world. Exactly. Um, So I still want to ask you, do you think it changed you? Because I think, again, maybe this is my friend's perception of you. Maybe this is your student's parents' perception of you. But I think the idea that you would take a tape recorder and go to a Trump rally and interview people you've never met before who weren't expecting you doesn't fall in line with, I think, a lot of the ways that people see you, but it totally makes sense to me. So I've been trying, whenever people express surprise that you're doing things like this, I struggle with saying, well, but that's the Sam I know. But for some reason, it's not the Sam that a lot of people know. So I don't know if you're – are you introverted <laughs> or are you I, I are you know. a reluctant introvert? Are you a reluctant extrovert? I, I'm a reluctant extrovert is probably a good way of putting it because first thing that comes to mind in this arena is like you dragging me to parties. When we, when we were first dating – dating, never really dated. No. You would drag me to parties and you'd be like, you'll like these people. And I remember you, you'd have to like honestly really cajole me to get out of the house, put my clothes on and go to this party. I don't want to. I don't want to. And you would drag me in and you would say, OK, talk to this person. And I'd be like, what do you know? I don't. And this person would say, hello, I'm this person. And then all of a sudden I'd be engaged with this person. And you'd be like, OK, it's been seven hours. It's time to go. And I'm like, no, no, no. We're just getting started. So I think, yeah. A reluctant extrovert. I think that's well, well put. Yeah. Um, yeah, it has changed me. What's happened to me is that I've become much more accepting of myself and much mm. more accepting of my own foibles and idiosyncrasies and failings and shortcomings. That, again, paradoxically, put aside this idea of, of like this desperate desire to be liked. I'll add that in there. And and so like when I was what I was feeling when I was, or at least the thing that I kind of like put in my backpack, so to speak, when I went to talk to the. Trump people was like, just do the thing that you do when you're talking to someone that you don't like, who you disagree with, and yet you feel the necessity to make them like you. Oh. So, right, which is fundamental. It's really like a core thing for me and has Mm -hmm. gotten to me into like Mm -hmm. trouble, Mm -hmm. so to speak, um, because I'm so desperate that I give up on my principles (laughs) and I allow myself to be trod upon and then that makes me even angrier and that happened in a lot of work environments a lot of social environments so I actually use that to my advantage this time because I was like okay well you're not actually fostering a real relationship here Um, you're a little bit exploiting them so you can fake being 
um, that and then walk out of there with uh, some sort of authentic responses because nobody's on their guard. Mm. Mm-hmm. The podcast has provided kind of, whether there are eight people who listen or 800, there aren't 800, but <laughs> more closer to eight. But however, there's the audience, like I feel like I owe them something. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to like, I, I could just bring them the same old claptrap, the same old drivel, but what would be the point? I want to bring them something that maybe they won't hear somewhere else or at least in these circles or you know, something new and, and that's at least risky and and challenging. And so I, I kind of went and put aside all the fear I had because I was like, well, I have a duty to my audience. That's interesting. I think about it a lot in relation to my brother being a photographer in that to walk around a neighborhood or a factory for an hour and a half, would an empty factory, would be weird. But to walk around taking a pic- pictures for an hour and a half is has merit or worth or artistic value or something to do. And so I think a lot of the conversations you have, you're having with people that you care deeply about, but you wouldn't necessarily say, let's go sit in a room and talk for three hours. Right. But you can say... I'd like to interview you, right. and then it gives you the framework to then have the conversation that you'd want to have anyway. Yeah. So it's a it's it's a tool yeah. for connection. Yeah. In the same way, I think my brother's camera has been a tool for him in navigating the world. Right. I mean, it, 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 that's really an excellent observation. I also see it like I think that you know everyday conversations they do at times have real substantive parts of them that I think everyone should or other people should hear. Well, I think the perfect example is you did all these recordings of your grandmother and your parents before you were podcasting, right? And then it's great that you have these records of these mundane conversations, but you didn't really do anything with them until you hit upon this as your sort of art form. And my parents always told me, you should interview your grandmother, you should interview your grandmother. And I thought, to what end? I'm never going to listen to that conversation again. Or if I do, it'll just make me sad that she's not here. So I never interviewed my grandmother. And now to see your interviews with your grandmother or your your mother who has passed away, it's it's not mundane, but it's every day. I recently learned via, I think, the Fresh Air podcast, that quote, well-behaved women rarely make history or or something like that, is actually taken out of context and doesn't mean what everyone thinks it means. It never does. What it means is the people who were just going about their business are not recorded in history. It's not, that, that quote was not initially meant to be, go be radical. It was meant to inspire historians to take a breath and record what's actually happening in everyday life. While I think it's unlikely that anyone could enjoy a conversation between me and Sam as much as I do, I hope this was somewhat interesting listening. Have more questions for Sam? Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and maybe he'll answer your question. Have a question for me? Leave a review and a request, and maybe Sam will add me to his list of ever-growing interviewees. Also, depending on how long you've known us, maybe this music you're listening to sounds familiar. Thanks to C-Ray, a band from Brooklyn, for letting us use their music during this show. 
It's been a lasting part of our relationship. Thanks for listening. Send me on.